A few years ago, a very good friend of mine called me after a little bit of small talk. He said, I'm, I'm actually calling to invite you and Julie to join my wife and I in a small group for pastors and their spouses. We thought we would invite four other couples to join us once a month on a Sunday night for a, a light supper and conversation. Maybe sometimes we'd go to a movie or read a book together, that sort of thing. Would you be interested? I responded uh, almost immediately, yes, we would love to. I know we'd, we'd enjoy getting to know you all better, and it'd be nice to meet some other pastors here, here in town. And then there was a pause. And his voice kind of lowered a little bit, which was a sign that he was saying something serious he said, I need to tell you, I'm going through a period of great loneliness. I feel as though I'm all alone. I was a little surprised by his confessional tone. He serves a large church, a church that is thriving and growing while most of the other churches in his denomination are declining and falling apart. His is going well. He's a sought-out speaker and, and keynote uh, presenter and, and consultant around, not just around the country, but around the world. And yet the tone of his voice was clear. I'm so alone. Uh, the loneliness is almost un unbearable. I recall a meeting about a year or so ago with a former member of our congregation, someone who's moved to another state, was back in town for some business, called and said, I, I've, I've been watching online. I'd love to meet you in person. Can we get together? I said, sure. We met over at Stoff's for a cup of coffee on Grandview Avenue. And he said almost the exact same words. This man is, is thriving in his business. He's doing quite well. And yet, in a soft voice, he said the most difficult part of what I do is the loneliness, the sense that no one really can understand what it is I'm facing. Last week, as I worked on this sermon, I found an article by a, a psychologist named Juan Angel who notes that according to his research, this sense of loneliness can have a severe effect not only on our relationships with each other, but also on our physical well-being. If you're afflicted, as the psalmist says this morning, with loneliness, you're, all, you're almost more susceptible to disease. The research even shows that if you experience loneliness over a long period of time, it can shorten one's lifespan. No wonder the psalmist uses the word afflicted. It's as though loneliness for him is a disease in and of itself, one that causes him to feel beaten up, pushed down, forgotten. Remember when our, our son was about, our firstborn was about three months old. For some reason, I had scheduled, even though I'd known for months before that, that Julie was going to be delivering a baby and he would be very young still in the summer. <clears throat> I scheduled a mission trip for our youth group to go to the uh, mountains of Tennessee. It was an, called an Appalachian Mountain Work Trip. We took two van loads full of kids and adults from San Diego all the way across country to Upper East Tennessee we, where we worked together with a, a mountain family there, helping them renovate their home and bringing it up to, to code, that, that sort of thing. For some reason, I scheduled that knowing my wife would be left alone for three, three weeks while I was off in the mountains with the youth group taking care of our three-month-old. Well, about a week and a half into that trip, we camped in a national park in tents. It's where we stayed while, uh, at, at night before we would work the next day. And I heard a, a loudspeaker, a voice in a loudspeaker. I couldn't quite understand what it was saying. It was about 11.30 at night. Everyone had gone to bed. Everyone was in their tents. But as the, as the speaker drew clear, I could understand it. Glenn Miles is Glenn Miles in this campground 
you have an emergency call. I got out of my tent, I waved, I saw that it was a, a police officer in a car, I waved to him, he picked me up, took me to a phone, I immediately called Julie. She said, the doctor thinks our baby has spinal meningitis. I don't know what to do. I've been trying for days to, to get a hold of you, and these words are just seared in my memory. I'm so alone. I'm so frightened. It's been so lonely. When will you be home? Well, I gathered all the adults from, the, from our, our group and we made arrangements for me, if necessary, to find a plane the next day to fly home. And we had enough adults to cover the drive and to lead the trip and all, all of that. As it were, three hours later, after we got up that morning, I did get a hold of Julie again, and she said, I've just been to the doctor. We've just found out that it's a false diagnosis. It's some minor thing. We've got, he's got medication. He's already doing much, much better. Still, though, that voice, those words, I'm so alone. In fact, as a result of that experience, I remember calling my mom a few weeks later and saying, you know, Mom, watching Julie in her loneliness care for our baby as the preacher is off wandering around the country or doing whatever it is I do, what was it like for you? And she said, oh, it was the same. Your father was gone seven days a week. I was the one who fed you, bathed you, you and your brother and your, your two sisters. I was the one who patted you on the back when you did well. I was the one who wiped the tears from your face when you were having a tough day. She wasn't bragging. In fact, her voice even kind of just trailed off. And again, almost the exact same words. It was so lonely. It was so lonely. Today's writer declares, I am lonely and afflicted. He's troubled by his loneliness. And note this, he sees his loneliness as an affliction. That's a way of saying it feels like it's a disease. I feel as though I've been infected with this. That psychologist, Juan Angel, says that, that loneliness is a complex and usually unpleasant emotional experience in response to isolation or even feeling like you're in isolation, even if you're surrounded by dozens or hundreds or even thousands of people. I've mentioned before that because of my father's career, which never stayed in any one church for most of my grown-up years, longer than three years, we moved a lot. We moved 14 times from the time I was born to the time, to age of 17. My junior year of high school, I went to three different high schools. By the time I got to the third one in December of that year, I felt the same sense of of desperate loneliness. There were 1,500 students in that school, and thank God I played a little bit of sports and made some friends that way, but still, Surrounded by 1,500, there was that sense of being in isolation. Have you, have you experienced that before? Do you, do you know what that's like? Maybe even within your own family. If you're unable to share your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions with the ones you feel most in love with, it can be a, a, a terrible sense of isolation, of, of, of loneliness, of being separated. Jonathan Martin wrote the book, how to survive a, a shipwreck. Martin is a pastor. He uses the, the metaphor of a shipwreck for what happens in our lives when we feel like we're completely out of control, when things have spun all the way around us. He experienced this, and he admits in his book, he never says specifically what it was, but it was something that he did that caused this to happen. 
He was so afraid in this mistake, in this error, in this sin. He was so afraid that his church would reject him, that his family would fail to love him, that his friends would turn their backs in judgment on him, that he kept it all to himself. There was there were almost no one who knew. And he was absolutely, he was nearly destroyed by the guilt of loneliness, by the, the inability to, to share what it was that was, was about to destroy him. What he discovered when he found the courage to say to his friends, to his family, to the people who cared for him, the people he cared for the most, what he thought would be rejection turned out to be instead an acceptance of him. Oh, they, they didn't accept the mistake. There was, there was a clear error on his part. But what they did was, it's almost like they physically stepped into the gap of his pain and stood there with him. It was in the ability to confess not only his mistake, but his need for the companionship of his friends and family. That he would say, and he would use this language, actually saved him. My, my singular wish as a pastor would be for all of us to find that same amazing, unending, overwhelming sense of friendship and love, of, of encouragement and hope. The difficult part is a simple recognition that sometimes it takes a shipwreck a metaphorical one or a real one, for us to finally experience that. I, I remember several years ago, I was, I was, going, I was struggling with a variety of concerns in, in my ministry. Frankly, what I was trying to do was do it all on my own. I, I had decided that, that, that uh, sort of unspoken, I was going to pull myself up by my own boots, bootstraps and with the Puritan ethic clearly in place, I was going to work through this and I was going to power through and I wasn't going to ask anybody like Jim or anybody else on the church board or anybody in the congregation for help. I wasn't going to talk to my family or anyone. We were going to make this happen. We're going to get over this little hump here and we're going to get on to the other side. I, the image I had in my mind, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but the image in my mind was I was Bruce Willis in Die Hard. Do you remember that movie? Remember the movie Die Hard, where Bruce Willis plays this tough cop from New York City, and he's, he ends up in a, in a high-rise, a, a, high, uh, a, a skyscraper in Los Angeles. It's, it's Christmas Eve. There's a big party going on. Terrorists take over, and somehow Bruce Willis, all by himself, single-handedly, destroys all these terrorists and save almost, saves almost all of the hostages that, that are there. That was the image in my mind. I'm going to be Bruce Willis. I'm going I'm I'm to walk over broken glass with bare feet if I need to to help my church and make things get stronger and better. And yeah, it was not a great idea. In fact, in the middle of that, I went on retreat with some friends in Arizona. I was talking about some of these things. I wasn't acknowledging the, I was trying to do it all by myself stuff, but my friends are pretty insightful. And one of them stopped me in the middle, in the middle of my rant. And he said, his name's Eric. He's a pastor in Nebraska. He said, how's your prayer life? Are you engaging the spirit in these things? Now, in my mind, what I wanted to say was, how's my prayer life? I just sat here and just told you all this stuff I'm dealing with, and you want to ask about my prayers? What kind of a friend are you? Who do you think you are? That's kind of an arrogant. Thank goodness I didn't do that. I remember staring down at the table legs, the table where we were gathered around, and I said, without looking at any of them, my prayer life stinks. I used to build in 30 minutes of quiet every morning and I, and my voice trailed off. And I said, I, I was afraid that if I could get this thing turned around, 
if I didn't take care of it on my own, somehow make this better and stronger and better that, that none of you would, would, would be my friends anymore. And then my friend Jim, he's also a pastor in Nebraska, Jim said, who told you we were your friends? <laughs> you, you need a group like that, right? You need somebody. Maybe it's your wife or your husband or, or your partner or your best friend or a group of guys or gals that you hang out with. You need folks who will deal with you, who will talk with you, who, who will be there when you need that, when you need that one or those, those ones to step in that gap of pain with you. Not to offer judgment, not to put you down, not to make your guilt worse. To acknowledge whatever it is, the mistake, the error, the sin even. We need those who will stand with us in the midst of that so that we can face it. The psalmist, the psalmist this morning gives us a way to make this happen. It's there in his confession of sin. Now, it's not a morbid confession. He's not like, oh my God, you're about to destroy me. In fact, it's the opposite of that. He confesses his sin and he has absolute trust in the love of God to forgive his sin and to graciously save him from this crisis that he's experiencing, not only from his own mistake, but from his enemies who seem to be surrounding him. He is certain that God's love will be enough for him to survive. So the way, the way through loneliness is not to pretend like everything's great, it's fine, don't worry, but to actually be honest with those you trust to stand with you in that moment. Jamie Green is the governing board chair here at First Community Church. He saw that my sermon this week was on loneliness. He sent me a link to a fascinating article. This, this person believes that the way to deal with loneliness, especially in the workplace, is to eliminate as much as possible the word I from your communication. We have a tendency in, in the workplace, a lot of people do, I've done this myself, to say, I'm working so hard these days. I'm overwhelmed. I'm putting in so many hours. I'm the one who made that project happen. I put it together, and I let it, and boy, we got it done. Eliminate the I, he says, and talk instead of we. We have much work to do. We have a great opportunity. We've got a difficult challenge, but we will work on it together. Do you see the change already that occurs? He says that people who use I too much end up feeling like their life is mediocre. Those who know how to speak of we, as in together we will work on this, discover that loneliness gets left behind. It, it, this, is, this, is, this is brilliant advice. Because it might even save lives. The inability to see the power of we, the inability to experience that love and that willingness of another to stand in the gap with us can be extraordinarily dangerous. I attended a funeral for a man who took his own life a few years ago. The father of the man was a member of the church I was serving at the time, and so I was there to support the father. I didn't know the one who had taken his life. The pastor, though, gave a beautiful sermon about this man's life was very kind and gracious in the way he described the different things he'd struggled with and dealt with in his life with his family, his business, and so forth. At the end, he said, I wish Don, that's the man, I wish Don could have seen this day, somehow imagined this day. There were over a thousand people crammed into this church for the funeral. I wish Don, he said, could have seen and heard all the beautiful things, uh, the laughter, the stories, the love, did he have struggles? Yes. Were there difficulties? Yes. Did his business go the way he wanted it to? No. But the words on this day are what Don needed to hear, to see that his life was more than the compilation of his successes or failures in his business, and to hear instead of the love and the grace 
that exists in his family and his friends. My, my, my sisters and brothers, if you never hear another sermon if I, I preach, if you never read another column I write or attend a class that I teach, please know, please remember this one thing. Please know, no matter what is happening in your life right now in this moment, you are already the apple of God's eye. You are already part of the, of the dust of the universe. You're made of stardust. The Hebrews letter writer says to us, you, we are just a little less than angels. Take that word with you today as a reminder that even when the shipwrecks come, even when the, the moments of failure and, or sin even feel overwhelming, you are still made of stardust. You are still just a little lower than the angels. Richard Rohr, the, the brilliant theologian, reminds us some form of suffering or death Psychological, spiritual, relational, or physical is the only way we will loosen our ties to our small and separate false self. Do you hear that? It's in letting go of the small false self that we reconnect with the love of God. I mean, here's the irony here in my own experience. I thought I was being strong and tough, and what I was really doing was embracing that small false self. I was making no room for the Spirit of God. Maybe what we need to remind ourselves is how often the Bible says, be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid. I, I love reading the Lutheran pastor, uh, Nadia Bowles Weber's work. She's a, she's, she, is, she is a pastor not like Jim or me. She, uh, she's female. She's covered in tattoos. She has piercings uh, on her face and ears and, and all around. Her hair is spiky. She's, she's kind of crazy and wild. She uh, sometimes sprinkles her sermons with swear words even. She's totally cool. It wouldn't work for me, but she's totally cool. I love reading her stuff. Listen to what she said about this very topic. The Bible doesn't say, be not resentful or be not stupid. She says, though, I would love it if be not stupid was a thing God says to us over and over again, but no, it's be not afraid. It's be not afraid. Loneliness and fear, they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. It's in the letting go of that fear, the letting go of that false self, that new life comes. The psalmist takes a risk. He confesses his sin. He acknowledges he's less than perfect. And in that simple acknowledgement, a pathway is made clear for him to leave the loneliness behind so that he might be embraced by God's Spirit. Some of you know my wife, Julie, has worked for many years as a court-appointed special advocate. They're called CASAs court-appointed special advocate. They fight for the rights of children in court. They don't go to court before the judge to create a winner and a loser. They're there to look at the needs of the children. They want to recommend to the judge, to the court, the best possible outcome for these children who are often forgotten in the system. In order for them to make that recommendation, you know what they have to do. They have to honestly and openly assess what's going on in the life of the family. Is there drug addiction? Is there alcoholism? Is there unemployment? Is there a failure to do simple things like keep the house clean, keep the house safe? It's in the naming of these things that the opportunity for healing begins, not as a way to blame or produce guilt or, or to feel a loss, but to actually name it, show what's there, determine what needs to be done next so that the children 
can experience the good news of the life of a family that cares for them. And you see, here's the good news for us. We, we do not walk this way alone. Take a moment. Come with me to a garden near the base of the Mount of Olives. In that very place, the one we name Lord and Savior, on the night before his own betrayal, denial, and crucifixion, we'll see him sweating drops of blood. We'll see him telling the very Spirit of God, the same one that works with us, this way is difficult, this way is hard. This one, Jesus, was alone. But in, the, in naming the loneliness and the fear, he found the courage to descend even into hell, even into the hellish experience that you and I might experience and promise that there he will be. He will be with us to bring us home, to bring every one of us home finally to the sweet and precious arms of God's undying love. If you never hear another sermon I preach, if you never attend another class I, I lead, remember this. You are already the apple of God's eye, no matter what you're facing. You are made of the dust of the stars. You are just a little lower than angels. May that give us the courage to stand together, no matter what we're facing, even in the dark. Amen.